Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, we're recording this podcast today from my office here at Beeson Divinity School, and it's an absolutely beautiful, gorgeous spring day. I wish you could be here and see the flowers, the trees. God has gifted us with this wonderful day. And we also have a very distinguished guest I'm going to talk with today on the podcast. His name is Dr. Bill Mounts. He's a distinguished scholar, a leader in the Lord's Church, especially in the area of biblical instruction and biblical training. He has a Ph.D. from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, an M.A. from Fuller Theological Seminary. He's done studies at Bethel College at Western Kentucky University, a very distinguished scholar and leader. Welcome, Dr. Mounts, to the Beeson Podcast. It's good to be here. Now, I want to begin by asking you to say just a little bit about how you came to know Jesus Christ. I was raised in a Christian home and it has always been a part of my life, so it's one of those kind of boring testimonies. <laughs> Where I just seven seven years old, mom said, "You want to be a Christian, Billy?" And I said, "Sure." Yeah. And it's been a it's been a pretty steady growth. You know, there's some good years and difficult years, but yeah. it's been a it's pretty an even growth pattern for me. That's a good um, testimony. You know, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Graham, couldn't remember when she became a Christian, but yeah. she knew she knew Jesus, yeah. loved the Lord, but she couldn't record in her own mind a specific point hmm. where that started because she, like you, you know, grew up. She was a missionary kid in China and grew up in a loving, devoted uh, Christian family. So that's a blessing in itself, isn't it? It's a blessing because sometimes, you know, people like me wish they had some wild years that could really make a testimony (laughs) zing. But I'm really glad I don't have the memories of a wild testimony. Sure. So I'm I'm thankful. Now, we should say a word about your father, who is also now with the Lord, Mm -hmm. a wonderful scholar and leader. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, Dad was... um, Dad did a lot of different things from being a hell diver in World War II and a missionary in Guatemala. And then he went into education. He was in the second graduating class from Fuller uh-huh. and went to Aberdeen as well. And he had always really wanted to have an active role at shaping the larger picture. And so he did it, acad- he did it academically as a scholar. He actually was on the first NIV translation committee. Oh, wow. And so I think we're the only father's son ever to have been on, on committees. And then he went into administration and eventually yeah. the pastorate. So. Wow. Well, we want to talk about some of your own work uh, on Bible translation. But before that, say a little bit about your experience as a student, particularly at Aberdeen, because you worked with one of the world's great, I mean great, biblical scholars. Yeah, Howard Marshall was my supervisor and it was a very interesting experience. Dad had been there with A.M. Hunter, yeah. and they played golf every Monday, and that was how they did their meetings. And professor, I went over with my golf clubs and found out that Professor Marshall was not that way. <laughs> he was much more reserved, but a phenomenal supervisor. Yeah. And when he told you you were ready to write, you were ready to write. Yeah, right. And uh, so there's a lot of assurance in that. We had him with us at Beeson on one occasion. He uh, taught a short-term course, and I remember wonderful fellowship with him. Uh, he had a lovely spirit, didn't he? Mm-hmm. He was a Methodist, yes. Uh, yes. an evangelical Methodist uh, in Britain, but it, that that wonderful Wesleyan yeah. piety showed right. through. He was a, it was a very unusual combination. That's why he didn't fit in categories, because he was egalitarian. 
Mm-hmm. He was Wesleyan and a superb, well, one of the best scholars in the world. And so he, it was always kind of hard to pigeonhole him. Yeah. And he just, uh, anyway, he, we asked him once, he said, uh, are you Arminian? He goes, no. And I go, but you believe you can walk away from the Lord? He goes, well, the Bible seems to say that. <laughs> and he said, well, that makes you Arminian. And he said, no, I've never heard anything nice about Arminians. So I'm not an Arminian. <laughs> that was right. the closest thing to a joke yeah. I heard in two years. Right. Now, uh, I want to talk a little bit about your own work uh, in Bible translation. Um, mm-hmm. You've mentioned this wonderful academic background you had at Aberdeen with High Howard Marshall. How did you get into the work of translating and producing Bibles? It started just because I'm not a natural language person, and so I don't pick things up instantly. And so it was always frustrating to read grammars written by people who did pick up languages instantly. And that's probably why my grammar is so different. It's written for people that don't have a natural affinity. And uh, thanks be the Lord, the grammar is so well and so people know about it and so i was running the greek language program at gordon conwell when wayne grudem contacted me about being on the esv so mm-hmm. it was through the grammar and my work at the seminary you're unusual maybe not unique but you're unusual in that you've had a deep investment in two major bible translations yes. at least the esv you just mm-hmm. mentioned uh, the english standard version of the bible and the niv mm-hmm. um, the new international version of the bible uh, sometimes these two translations are kind of posited as being at opposite ends or at least adversarial. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've managed to somehow bridge that. Yeah. Talk about that. I wish we would stop charting translations on our as different points on a line mm. because translations have phenomenal overlap. Mm. I mean, I'd be curious sometimes to do a mathematical comparison of the ESV and the NIV. I would guess there's an 80% overlap. Uh-huh. So it's not like they're totally different, but the ESV tends more towards replicating the words and making, leaving it up to you, the reader, to figure out what they mean. The NIV moves a little more towards meaning and a little more helpful to the reader. But my view as a translator is that my job is not to push my agenda or even to push my view of what a Bible should be. My view is you figure out what the translation philosophy is and then you be as consistent as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And so on the NIV, I don't think I suggested any changes for about four years. Mm-hmm. I came on the committee in 2010, right before the 20, well, we're finishing up the, the 2011. And I mean, I'm sure I expressed myself, but I wasn't going to be saying, oh, I think it should say this, or I think it should say that, because I hadn't figured out the rhythm of the NIV. And the ESV was so much in my head. Plus, I was raised on the RSV. Ah. And so that whole way of speaking was everything in my head. Yeah. And But my job on the NIV was to figure out what the philosophy is and then be consistent. Yeah. And so that's why I can be on both committees and be committed to what each Bible's trying to do. You mentioned the RSV. One of the guests we had at Beeson early in our life as a school was Dr. Bruce Metzger. Oh, wow. Yeah. What a great scholar yeah. and what a great Christian. Yes. Uh, we, yes. we so much learned from him on that occasion. He was, I guess, the chair of the new Revised Standard Version so. of yeah. the Bible, yeah. professor at Princeton. You mentioned your textbook, which is widely used and much appreciated, Basics of Biblical Greek. Mm-hmm. 
So you're taking the New Testament text, the Koine Greek mm-hmm. of the New Testament, and trying to help people learn how to navigate that. Right, right. How do you write such a book? <laughs> if I have a gift, it's to simplify complex things. Um, I mean, I'm not a especially powerful writer or any of those kind of stuff, but I can simplify. And it started in Latin in high school. And I hated Latin. Sorry, Latin <laughs> teachers. It just... Uh, but I kept looking like the, at the paradigms and going, well, that's just wrong. And I'm kind of strong enough to to say that. And so when I was in 10th grade, I started rewriting all the Latin paradigms okay. and then selling them for five cents a piece to my fellow students. <laughs> <laughs> and so I like to organize and catalog information. So when I came to Greek, uh, for example, there was I was just, well, that's an exception. That's an exception. And I go, no, because... If that's an, if this if this word is an exception and this other word is an exception, but they're both behaving the same way, they're not exceptions. And so, yeah. what I started out on was trying to figure out the real underlying rhythm of the language. Yeah. And once I think I basically figured that out, then that's how I wrote the book. Yeah. So it's 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 written for people for um, that aren't naturally good in language, and it walks them through in a, I think a simplified way. Yeah. It's also one of the things we found is that there's always this strange connection between students and their authors of their language texts mm-hmm. that they just there's a there's a personal connection. And it's, it's strange. I've not seen it on any other textbook. Um, but um, when I wrote it, there's a lot of me in it. And yeah. my dad told me later when he read the first edition. He told my mom, he said, oh, no one's going to buy this book. I feel so bad for Bill because it's just so personal. Yeah. But that's that's one of his strong points. I think that's made it attractive to lots yeah. of students, including students here at Beeson Division School. You know, we require a lot of biblical languages, yes. relatively speaking. There may be one or two seminaries with a course or two more, but not many. No. And uh, people, when we started Beeson, that was a commitment. If I wanted to change that part of the curriculum, which I don't, mm-hmm. but if I did, I couldn't. I think the faculty would rise up and protest. Mm-hmm. Good for them. And and people would say to us, you can't require that much Hebrew and Greek of your yeah. students. Nobody will come. We found the opposite is yeah. true. They right. come because that's a strength and a priority. And they're really interested in getting into the texture of the Word of God. Right. And, you know, when, when I was sent up to preach, I wasn't always right. I made mistakes. I had to correct myself periodically uh, the next week. But... I had to be confident that I had done my homework. And I don't know how you can stand up in a pulpit and say, thus saith the Lord, mm. and not know Greek. Mm. I mean, I, just, I don't know how you do it. My Hebrew is much weaker than my Greek, but I have Paul House. And many yeah. times, a decent professor and ESV fellow member, I don't know how many times I called Paul and said, will you please explain the Hebrew to me? I don't get it. But I had to know what God's words were if I was going to preach it with strength. And so I just I I applaud Beeson for towing the line on the languages. It's a deep commitment. And yeah. to, to date myself, you know, my uh, first grammar in the New Testament uh, was Machen. Yeah, that was a long time ago. He was yeah. a great leader of the church back in the early part of the 20th century, right. yeah. and wrote many things New Testament. But he also has a little introduction to Greek. Yeah, it's a very very good book. Yeah. Um, so, but it's written. The problem with Machen's book and. My secretary once said to me, how are you going to feel when you meet him in heaven? You better conduct yourself well in selling your own book because you're going to have to meet Professor Machen someday. But it was written for a day and age where, you know, 
people did learn Latin in high school, yeah. and they did know their English grammar, yeah. and times change. They have changed. Well, talk a little bit about the work you've been doing now for some time. You're the president and the founder of Biblical Training. What is that? Biblical Training is it's an online resource, and it's a nonprofit ministry. And what our commitment is is to move world-class education out from behind the paywall into the church. There will always be seminaries, and I'm glad for that. There needs to be seminaries. We're not accredited. We don't want to be accredited. We're not going to compete uh, with seminaries. But our concern is is for people in the church that can't get to Paul House mm. and Frank Thielman. Mm. And so we have uh, 130 classes, 2,100 hours. Your Theology of the Reformers mm. is there. Thank you. Yes. And it's... Uh, People can just pick and choose what they want to learn. And we hear stories from all around the world mm. of individuals or small groups or uh, churches that pick it up as a formal part of their, their training for people. You know, you can have a really good uh, Bible preaching pastor, but he's only got a half hour. Mm. And God's word deserves more than that. Mm. And so our classes are designed for those people that want to go deeper. And it's international, right? It's, Not just USA or North America. You know, I, I'm, I'm sitting here going through the list of the professors in my, in my head. Most of them, most of them are American. And mm-hmm. we have some stuff in other languages, but we don't have a real thrust to get things into. We have some stuff in Hindi and Swahili, Arabic and Chinese and a little in Spanish. But English is a lingua franca. Yeah. I mean, we, we can push and, you know, there's a lot of good stuff happening in northern India right now. Where there's persecution, God's spirit really works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's mass revivals going on, and we are the apparently the primary source of discipleship materials. But so there's Hindi, but right next door, you know, there's another language. And so we just found that if we just really work on understandable English, yeah. we're addressing the bulk of the world. And lay people will be especially interested right. in this. Not only trained clergy, but Right. There's we have three different levels. What we call foundations is lay education. The academy is university level, and the institute is uh, seminary level. But by being so careful at who we pick to give us lectures, we pick people like Paul House, who, even though he's a brilliant scholar, can communicate in ways that anybody can understand. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's a there's a church in Jackson, Tennessee, right, just down the road from you. Uh, church of about 2,000, they have almost 200 people enrolled in a three-year seminary program mm. with our stuff. And Doug Stewart from Gordon-Conwell oh. is the Old Testament guy. And and it's all understandable. It's, yeah. it, they can really get to it. So Wonderful. Now, you were here, uh, you're, you're speaking in our chapel today, and we're going to that in just a moment when we finish the podcast. But last night you gave a public lecture, mm-hmm. Do You Really Trust Your Bible? Mm-hmm. For those who weren't able to be here or listen to you in person, what did you say? I make two basic points when I talk on this. Um, and, the, and the first is to understand that when, when people say, Oh, I can't be a Christian, I don't, how can you possibly trust the Bible? Really, you believe that? I want people to understand that if you, no matter what you are, a Christian or a Buddhist or a materialist or an atheist, everything is a faith system. At the end of the day, everybody believes. So materialist believes there's nothing outside the observable order. They can't prove it. And I don't want Christians to get boxed into a corner thing. Well, they know things. We have to believe them. So we mm-hmm. talked about that. But mainly we, we talked about the attacks that are being made. Uh, we... Uh, the Bible's full of contradictions. 
that we got the wrong books in the Bible, issue of canon. I didn't get to textual criticism, but the idea that the Greek texts have been corrupted through the centuries. Uh, translations are different. How can you trust any of them? So I just kind of pick what those major attacks are and then talk about them. Mm-hmm. You know, so many of those uh, criticisms, those attacks against Scripture, are very old, aren't they? Yes, yes. Uh, they're, they, they're dressed up in new guises. Right. But you read Augustine, he was wrestling with these same kinds of questions. It's, it's, I still remember at Fuller, I went to Fuller Seminary and I, I came down, I was walking downtown Pasadena and there's a big old sign in the bookstore. Find here the books that the church fathers didn't want you to read. I thought, well, did they discover something new? No, it's just a New Testament apocrypha. Yeah. And it seems like about every 10 years, the same old argument cycles through again. Yeah. And, you know, in the current, the current debate, um, there's been some, a few new things added, but it's mostly just same old, same old. Yeah. How are we to understand something like Gnosticism, for example, yeah. that was so powerful in the early church right. and against which the church had to take a stand? Yeah. Uh, it still has influence today, seeping right. in in all kinds of ways. Right. How do we understand something like that, that kind of movement of, a, a contra-belief, let's say. Yeah. I, I think the Christians need to understand there's always going to be attacks. And there are always going to be kind of a sectarian, kind of a little narrow. I think, I think it was Luther who said that if you don't deal with whatever currently is being attacked in the gospel, you're not defending the whole gospel. That you've got to deal with what are those specific attacks. And so now it's translations and canon and stuff like that. But in Gnosticism... I think the way to debate it is to understand that it's going to come and they're going to be very fervent. Mm. That it is, Paul tells Timothy that the false teachers in Ephesus were devoted to their myths and endless genealogies. The same word that's used of a drunk being devoted to liquor. Mm. I mean, it's, it's everything to them. Mm. And you have to be on your guard. When I was pastoring, we had a heresy that Christ had already returned and there was no mm. future coming. And there were three of them. There were three, and they came in, and they snuck into the church, just like they did in Ephesus. And they they got into positions of leadership. They started having Bible studies, uh, including my son, mm-hmm. uh, was being affected by this. And it just, it, But it's that whole Gnostic approach that we have this little piece of information that no one else does, and it permeates everything. Yeah. And I wasn't ready for it. I didn't see it coming, and I remember talking to one of the guy, one of the three, and I said, "Is it possible for you to teach a son? Because a really good Sunday school teacher, I said, is it possible for you to teach Sunday school without this becoming a major issue? Because hmm. it, it, it's, he says, no. So they're absolutely devoted to it, and and that's kind of the Gnostic, I think, kind of mentality. And hmm. pastors just have to be aware of it. I had to stop my series, and I preached a three-part sermon series on Jude. Hmm. And I said, this is what it means to fight for the faith. And with the elders' approval, I said, okay, here's the decision. You can believe whatever you want, but if you're going to teach in this church, you have to hold to the statement of faith, and you can't insist on things that are contrary to it, and you can't insist on things that are not in our statement of faith. Yeah. And that was how I had to deal with that particular problem. The three people left. But I wasn't ready for it. So I think that's you yeah. have to remember that they're out there. Your analogy of the drunken man yeah. uh, speaks of addiction. And th- this right. is a kind of addictive behavior, isn't it? I, I think it is. I think it is. Because it, it, it's part of their definition of who they are. Yeah. They're no longer a yeah. Christian. They're, they're someone that's pushing this one narrow agenda. 
Let me ask you to go back to a topic we just broached early on um, because you've been in both the ESV and the, mm-hmm. the NIV worlds uh, comfortably, I think, in both, yeah. appreciated mm-hmm. in both. We, th- we hear a lot about this difference between formal equivalence, that would be more like the ESV, and functional dynamic, more like the NIV. What do those terms mean? Basically, formal equivalent translations try to retain the form of the Greek and the Hebrew. And so you try to do a word-for-word translation. You stick as close to the words of the syntax as possible. If the Greek uses a participle, we try to use a participle kind of thing. Uh, functional equivalent is is more interested in the meaning that the author is mm-hmm. trying to convey. And if the author used a participle, but if a noun does a better job in English, then the, the, the NIV will use a noun. So it's one is more geared towards replicating the form, and the other one is more geared towards replicating the meaning. And I, I'm I, uncomfortable with it. Yeah. I, I'm comfortable with two, with the two-fold division, because there's so much more variety out right. in the Bible market today. Right. I'm on a, apparently a one-man crusade to ban the word literal. <laughs> because what people say, what kind of Bible do you want? They say, well, I want a literal. What do you mean by that? And they've been, they've been taught to think literal means word for word and therefore accurate. Mm. And my point is accuracy isn't in replicating words. It's in replicating the meaning faithfully. Mm-hmm. So in in the way I look at it, we I think there's really five categories. If you want to use the word literal, the only literal Bible there is is the is an interlinear. Mm. And then there's uh formal equivalent, good formal equivalent, NASB, ESV. A little bit the new CSB is it kind of straddles the fence, but it's probably more uh, formal. And then in functional, it's the NIV. And my other concern is the NIV and the NLT are really different. Mm. And people tend to lump them together and kind of criticize them. I, I read one article where he described the NLT and used the, it to criticize the NIV. Oh. And they're really different translations. The NLT is a natural language. It's how do we say this? I mean, an NLT doesn't care whether it's a noun or whatever. An NLT is new, the New Living, living Translation. Yeah. A really, really good Bible. Yeah. I'm gonna, I, I want to emphasize that. It's, uh, we have a colleague, Dr. Matthews, who was involved yeah. in that. Yeah. No, it, it's if you want to know what a group of really smart people think the Bible means, the NLT is wonderful. The NIV is much more restrained. It doesn't move nearly as far away from the Greek and Hebrew as the NLT does. Yeah. And so I just think you need to keep those categories different. And then my fifth category, there is no term for it. It's the message, which are, you know, just changing cultures totally and, and mm-hmm. just really, really different. I love to read Eugene Peterson's The Message, but yeah. I read it in a certain kind of way right. and for right. certain kind of purposes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in that sense, you know, I'd say I like to be biblically promiscuous <laughs> using all these different kinds of translations, yeah. uh, but with discernment, hopefully. Yeah. And with, with a sense of seeking uh, the accuracy of God's word. Right. That's what we're after. I think we have these five different niches of Bibles, and they're they're significant niches, and they're important niches. I know some Bibles kind of want to be the standard, and there's not ever going to be another King James. There's never going to be one that one size fits all. Uh, We just have moved past that. But I think it's important for people to understand why the Bibles are different, and they're still trustworthy even though they're different, and then where are they comfortable? Where do they want to sit? What do they want to do with it? Now, we're doing this recording, this podcast here in my office at Beeson, and hanging on the wall right over there 
Dr. Mm-hmm. Mounts, mm-hmm. is a portrait of William Tyndale, yeah. who in some ways is the great-grandfather of us all, right. isn't he? Yeah, Say absolutely. a little bit about Tyndale. Uh, I, I've been told that about 80% of the King James is Tyndale. Mm-hmm. And I've seen the listing of so many of the expressions that are actually we use today in modern culture. We don't even know they're from the Bible. Uh, they came from him. Mm. I mean, he was a gifted wordsmith, I would say an inspired wordsmith. And so when the King James came along, they had a, it's kind of like the ESV had a really good base in the RSV. The King James folks had a really good base in Tyndale. They did. That's a good analogy. Yeah. yeah. And you know, when you look at the King James Version, which of course was the official approved version, came out in 1611, and you read the prefatory material, they talk about all these great people that are on whose shoulders they stand. Not a word about Tyndale. It's not mentioned. I did not know that. And that's because, of course, he died as a yeah. condemned heretic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a martyr to the yes. cause of biblical translation. So yeah. we, we stand on his shoulders. We're grateful for him and, and for the KJV and for all of the others yeah. uh, who give us the word of God in our own language. And it's a great blessing to be able to take the Bible and read it with some understanding mm-hmm. and seek for deeper meaning. So the work you're doing is so important, I think, for the church, for the kingdom yeah. of God, for the advancement of the cause of Christ. So I commend you for it. Thanks. Thanks. And I wish you every blessing. Thank you so much for coming to Beeson. This is your first visit. My I first think. time. I've never even been in Birmingham before. And having lived in Kentucky, it's really odd. I've never <laughs> gotten down here. But, yeah, it's my first time here. So it's a wonderful place. And you didn't ask me to do this, but I'll, I'll tell you, this is way up of my recommendation list. Thank you. Um, it's the, the course loads, the student-teacher ratio, the, the environment that you guys have created to really not just push data into kids' heads, mm-hmm. but to form their lives. It's really significant, and I'm not being paid to say that. No, it's, no. I really, it's been my experience here, so thanks. Thank you so much for that good word. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Bill Mounts. He is the founder and president of Biblical Training. He served on the Committee on Bible Translation for several major uh, translations, the NIV, the ESV. Uh, A wonderful scholar, a wonderful Christian man. Thank you for this time today. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.